Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Blockhead listeners, welcome to another episode. The dog days of summer have finally arrived. It is uh, middle to late August here uh, in upstate New York, and it is sweltering. Oof. Man, nobody wants to be outside. We are hunkering down in the AC today, although I am up here because of my due diligence. I'm up here in the closet, <laughs> as usual, uh, and and uh, the heat is rising rapidly in these soundproofed walls, uh, which is not as glamorous as it sounds. They're soundproofed with uh, <laughs> lots of uh, leftover fabric from my wife's business but um, here here I am because uh, I believe in this podcast and I believe in comics <laughs> and I believe in cartooning and I believe in our guest Pat Sandy and so I'm up here in the closet and um, already beginning to, to feel faint and sweat and oh my gosh I made I, I've got my nice little cocktail of cranberry juice and seltzer here trying to stay cool <laughs> but uh you know if i start to fade you'll know why <laughs> uh, but uh the summer is winding down unfortunately as all things must pass here we are the summer is winding down and uh, uh but we we are ending the summer on blockhead with a big bang pat sandy of next door neighbors is joining us pat sandy Man, I love this comic strip, Next Door Neighbors. It is a dependable laugh a day, that is for sure. It runs five days a week. I think it's five days a week on GoComics.com. Follow it there. Uh, It is a comic strip about this guy, Norm Dewey, his wife, Jan, uh, Norm's mom, Vera, and his kids. Uh, They are the neighbors that nobody wants to have that uh, make you put the house on the market (laughs) as soon as possible. Uh, Yeah, Norm is that guy, as Pat says, and... uh, we all know somebody like that in our neighborhood or have known. If you're not living next door to the guy, it's a funny situation, and that's exactly what Next Door Neighbors is. It's a funny, funny comic strip, and it's cartooning. Really, comic strip cartooning is at its very best in a way. Pat has got all the tools. He, he writes great dialogue. It's character-based. His cartooning is funny, and uh, his drawing, as Charles Schultz often said, you know, cartooning is funny drawing, and Pat's drawing is really funny. He's been around a long time. Uh, he's done a lot of different stuff. He's worked for American Greetings for a number of years and many other greeting card companies as well. His uh, freelance illustration and comics have shown up in the Wall Street Journal and the Cleveland Plain Dealer and many other publications over the years. This is a lot of fun, this interview, Pat and I, although it's also really, it, it comes down to, this is what it is. It's two cartoonists talking and we, we do a lot of shop talk. Uh, there's a lot of talk about writing, particularly about writing comic strips and the, the form of comic strips and the, the three and four panel format and getting a workout every day. It's about cartoonists we admire as well and uh, it's it's also about the state of cartooning today. So it really this is really shop talk in a way between two cartoonists uh, working today trying to do our best and trying to survive. I really enjoyed talking to Pat and we've got this in two parts. 
this week part one obviously and uh, next week part two well maybe I'll put that episode up sooner than a week we'll see so without further ado let's just get right into it okay Pat Sandy and myself in discussion <laughs> welcome to Blockhead finally Pat Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, man, it is a it is a pleasure uh, because I absolutely love your comic. I absolutely love it. it, it oh, thank uh, you. It is a very dependable laugh a day, I have to say. <laughs> well, you know, we all need that nowadays, you know what I mean? Some kind of yeah, a you, chuckle. Yeah, we do. These are, I mean, you know, without getting too deep into it, this sure. seems like a desperate time and, and uh, we need relief and and some someplace to blow off steam. And Norm's uh, July Fourth parties are probably the best place to do that. <laughs> it's like um, it's like an annual tradition. I don't know. I, you know, I've I've told people before when I've done uh, interviews and stuff. I mean, we all know a Norm. We really do. Yeah, one way or another. But I, you know, every year I, I, I guess I hit that theme, and it gets you know crazier and crazier. And um, yeah, you know, I mean, he's just he's. It's funny when people want this sort of summation of what norm is or you know the, the one sentence elevator pitch thing and i always say it's really the strip is essentially about that guy yeah no that guy you know what i mean yeah one of the things i love about the strip and it's it's like something that i never do <laughs> is is that you can get into the strip at any time any point you know this guy you right. know the situation it's very familiar it's easily accessible you can get into it right away and then of course once you're into it right away you're sucked in because it's just so darn funny well i, t I tend to gravitate to you know it's i've, I've never been I, I don't do gags necessarily in the strip so much as character humor and character humor, I think, um, requires a little bit of an investment, you know, yeah. the reader. And then once you're in it, you kind of, you know, you get all the, uh, milestone things that you need to know. This character's like this and that and the other, and uh, you just follow it through. And, it, you know, the funny thing, I was just telling somebody recently that, um, you know, a comic strip, this is just my philosophy as I ramble on, but, uh, mm -hmm. You know, a comic strip is kind of, you only get like one little chunk a day. That's right. it. And it goes out and whether it's two days a week or seven days or whatever. The thing is, though, is it, it's, that's all, you, that's all the reader gets. And I think in general, what you, you know, it's kind of like writing a novel, but mm -hmm. you get to publish like three sentences a day, <laughs> you know, yeah. because if you have other things that you're thinking of doing, yeah. And you're not, you know, you're not readily addressing them in that moment and stuff. You know, people have to kind of trust where you're going, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's a very, you know, we don't talk about this a lot. Um, I think it's kind of a, it's taken for granted in a way among us who, who have toiled in this field and yeah. whatnot. Um, it, working in this incremental fashion is both it's it's really interesting it's like a drug you get hooked oh. into it once you've started thinking in that way it's like a form of meditation it's like a form of uh, of haiku it's like a form of exercise oh, yeah. you know you you think in terms of three and four panels beginning middle end you it, it is a puzzle that has to be put together and, it, yeah. and when it works it's like this thing of beauty you know like, like a haiku works you know oh, and true. you know and and it's very hard to break that habit and start moving into another way of telling stories once you've been in that that framework oh, no for, a long, 
time, you know, because it is, it's like a mo, it's a way of training your thought and the discipline that's involved in it, I think is, is really unique to itself. You know, well, I'm, yeah, I would agree with that. Well, the thing, there's brevity, uh, you know, they say brevity yeah. is all the wit or whatever, but I mean, brevity really is sort of, you know, I mean, if you're going to follow a strunk and white manual, you probably shouldn't be doing a comic strip, you know, with a comic strip, you have to abbreviate and yes. sort of sort of pare back things that you should know better, you know, like uh, shortening sentences and that kind of thing. Absolutely. I, I got to tell you, I mean, I'll spend time struggling on one word. I'll be in my notebook writing and stuff and, and I'll be spending two weeks thinking, man, how in the hell do I get rid of this word? What am I doing? <laughs> oh, my God. I can't believe you're saying that because oh that's God. exactly what I do. Oh, and, it's, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? It, it is crazy. And I'll tell you, a lot of times I do like I will agonize over choice of verbiage, you know, as, as you've just said, you know, for for uh, I don't know how long and I'll keep writing and keep writing and I'll, I'll have written it in my notebook. Then I will uh, put it all together and and I'll look at it when I'm putting it together in Photoshop where I put all my my procreate panels together. I'll look at it there and I'll go, wait a minute, something's not working. Something's not right. And sometimes I'll absolutely rewrite the punchline entirely. You know, the last, you know, stage of the strip. Sometimes the strip will go up and I'll go, oh my God, I've got a better word for that. And I'll take the strip down and put a new word in. Well, that's that's sort of the beauty of, uh, you know, the webcomic form is that you can, you can fix things. I tend, once I've published it and I put quotes around that, but I mean, once I've published it, unless it's really something that's going to keep me up at night, I I try and they all do really. But I mean, I try to, to just, you know, to kind of leave it, but there's some things where I wish I took them back, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And, and me too. And, and actually, and sometimes I have, Fortunately, or I've done it for myself anyway, where I've gone. Oh, I'll do that. Yeah, like commas or something like that or punctuation. I mean, I'll, I'll alter it simply because. And the thing is, at, at Go Comics, though, that the ingesting aspect of it sometimes does not reflect on various mm-hmm. devices. I mean, you can you can fix something. Yeah. Or in the morning or something, and it's not going to really get noticed on some computers. It's just basically for your own, you know, edification or whatever. Yeah, I had done when I was on Go Comics. I did. I am officially off Go Comics now. But wow. I, when I was on Go Comics, I um I would do that sometimes. There'd be a punchline or something I, I'd want to change. And you could do that at four in the morning, you know. Um, oh. Although somebody in another part of the world is is probably already seen it. Oh sure, uh, sure. Yeah. You could go in and take something down and put it back up, and within a couple hours, it would be you know it would be. Oh there. yeah. And, and it's, I think that's that's one of the nice things about the web comics form. It's interesting because in this day and age, you know, it used to be you just had strips and they were just in newspapers. And that was basically the extent of it. But I mean, you know, while the Internet has blown things up to the point where there's you know zillions of strips out there, the newspapers have contracted, as we all know. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and there's really there's only so many chairs in that game of musical chairs, you know. Yeah. Very and, few. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I was telling somebody a while back, and I think I told some other guys this that, uh, you know, 30, 30 years ago, I, I, I worked my career at American Greetings. So I was there for right. 35 years and stuff. And uh, how long? 35 years. 35 and, years. Okay. Yeah. In those days, you know, back in the 80s and the early 90s and stuff, I mean, you could be at a cocktail party or something like that. And, you know, everybody's talking to one person. Oh, I'm a teacher, one person, I'm a whatever, you know, lawyer mm-hmm. or something. And I would say I draw cartoons for a living. That's what I did on the cards and stuff. 
I, I, I used to subtext it and say, you know, I, I basically did what I did in eighth grade, but I didn't get hit by nuns. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't get hit by nuns, like beating the crap out of her. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, I'd be the only guy. I mean, nobody would know, like, who, who did that for a living? It was a pretty cool gig, right? So yeah, sure. in those days, in the 80s and stuff, maybe the 90s, I, I would bet you there might have been only about, and I'm just guessing here, really, maybe 10,000 around the country that were actually making some type of living doing Cartoon, you know, yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. And nowadays, I mean, with the internet, I don't know, maybe 10, 10, 20, 350 billion or something are doing it. You know, yeah. there are a lot of people doing this craft, and suddenly it, it is a little bit tougher to stick your head up out of the sand and get some notice, you know? Oh, man, it, it, it sure is. And I, I had, uh, and, and not to get into this again, really, because I just had this conversation uh, with Ryan Flanders, who was a design director at MAD for 17 oh, years. Yeah, and yeah. we talked about the end of MAD. And we talked about, uh, you know, the outlets, the paying outlets for cartoonists drying up. And <laughs> and because making, a, getting your work out there and getting it seen is one thing, but then, you know, making a living from it, uh, is a different thing. And, and sometimes, um, you know, the two obviously don't necessarily go hand in hand, getting your work seen and making money. Oh. And I, I think that's the, the struggle these days is how to do both. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's very, very competitive, but back, back in those days, you know, it's interesting. I think about the, uh, the members of the national cartoonist society and whatnot. And I, I don't know that, it, you know, really were there, do you think there were 10,000 people making a living as cartoonists? I, I, I'd say that's a high number. I'll be I've real seen, honest with you. Yeah, I think it's pretty high. I I, I think the number is a lot smaller and, and uh, than that, making a living from it. But who knows, you know? I mean, uh, well, there was, there's always some uh, quieter outlets. Like, you know, for example, for a number of years, I did the magazine stuff. So I would yeah. have my work in Wall Street Journal and Good House yeah. and all that. And that was a whole different ballgame. And there was, you know, I did it basically through mail but i i knew of guys that you know hit the pavement every wednesday or whatever in new york city not just new yorker but all the other mags and that field used to be absolutely jumping i mean it was there was some money to be made there and then in the last i don't know maybe 10 15 years it just kind of went poof you know there's yeah I've known a lot of um, uh, illustrators and um, back back in the day, illustrators who used to, you know, make a lot of money from magazine work. And in the, it started to happen in the 90s. Yeah, there was there was a move away from, you know, utilizing illustration in favor of photography. And a lot of illustrators found themselves out of work. And some of them, oh. you know, uh, actually changed careers, you know, went from illustration into uh, where they were very successful into a totally different career because oh, look at editorial cartooning. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I know somebody told me this recently that there was maybe 30 or 40 actual employed editorial cartoonists at some type of publication around the country. Yeah. And that's well, incredible. That yeah. really is, you know. You know, it, it's it's just uh and, and there used to be an editorial cartoonist at every newspaper. And every city had at least two newspapers. Yep. Oh yeah, right. You and, know, and I had when I got out of school, I mean when I was at Akron when I was in college at Akron U, I did editorial cartoons and I was doing really well with it. And I remember that's all I wanted to do, but I was willing to work at whatever newspaper, you know, like do weather maps or whatever to get the opportunity. And so after graduation, I mean, I, I went around the country looking from like from Ohio to Texas and all this type of thing. And I remember there was some editor might have been in Louisville or something. For some reason, I seem to remember the newspaper there. But anyway, the person said, you know, why why would I pay you money if I can get it from a syndicate for 10 bucks? That's a direct quote. 
Yeah. And I and, heard somebody relate a quote similar to that online with all this talk recently. Well, I, you know, when I was a similar story when I was a kid. I worked at a, a small newspaper as a, a telephone solicitor and the chief editor at the newspaper found out that I could draw. And so he looked at a couple of cartoons, asked me to do a couple of cartoons. And he said, OK, I'll tell you what, I'll pay you five bucks a week to do a cartoon for us. And I was like, OK, uh, I'm going to get in print. Great. I love it. I'll, yeah. I'll do it. I don't care whether you're paying me or not. Of course, that got old after about a year. But, uh, you know, he told me basically five bucks was all he could offer because that's what they paid a syndicate for a comic and so that was the going rate that was his budget that was all the money he had yeah see it's kind of a it's a weird symbiotic relationship you know between the syndicates and newspapers and all that type of stuff because on one hand they do offer packages to get content yeah and it's somewhat inexpensive compared to what somebody would want to make in a year and the newspapers feed off of that so yeah. it's kind of interesting. And that's one thing. And then you get exclusive strips that are sent to the newspapers where there's a little bit of serious money involved. But again, the outlets, it's the same thing with the greeting card industry, the, the available spots for that work. And, and the, the analogous thing with greeting cards is, you know, cards at stores, the pockets, you know, there's only so much footage. There's only so much space in real in real world terms, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's why the internet is such a bizarre, you know, I, I, I just told people before, can you imagine 35 years ago trying to explain the internet to somebody? <laughs> I can't. No, it's not. Although actually I remember my dad used to work at IBM and I remember a conversation back in maybe in the late seventies, early eighties. And my father was telling me about personal computers and me and my mom, and there was, we were like in total utter disbelief, you know, that's, <laughs> That's never going to happen. And, you know, you're out of your mind. No, everybody's going to have a computer. I can't believe that. No way. And, you know, but that that was the thing, you know, and, and uh, yeah, it's, a, it's been a, a revolution to those of us who have lived through it, you oh. know. Yeah. It's instead of being born into it, uh, it, it has been a revolution in thinking and in prioritizing and in what oh, we are during the day and all of that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And the economy, obviously, you know, the economy. So, you know, we were talking about the comic strip form, and we were talking about, and and I think you're a master of it, and I think you're a master of the, and and you must have learned some of that working on greeting cards. There's no question. Yeah, Yeah, well, you know, again, when I was in in school, it was editorial cartoons, and that literally is all I did for five years. Mm -hmm. I must have been on the six-year plan, something like that. But, you know, when I got to American Greetings, I walked in there, and I'm, you know, surrounded Mm -hmm. by extraordinary talent. And so after a while, I got put into an area where we wrote and drew our own stuff, and it was pretty heady. But the the structure, while similar to strips, is more of a me-to-you type of construct. So you're kind of your page one, not to get too wonky here, but the page one really the, the, is supposed to result in some me to you type of a sentiment. It's not necessarily a joke, but it obviously jokes part of it. I think yeah. what revolutionized greeting cards in a way, certainly alternative greeting cards um, in the 90s was panel cartoons, which were not really used very much uh-huh. in the late 80s. Well, when the far side came along. Yeah. Our yeah. side just dominated things. And then every greeting card company jumped all over. And, and as we can see, I think panel cartoons right now are kind of the standard in a way. Oh, so for story greeting cards, form, yeah. For story greeting cards and for, for oh, comics yeah. in general. Just comics. about, you know, that's, again, it's a gross generalization, but I mean, in many ways, panel cartoons are very, very easily accessible. And oh, sure. I mean, look at, you know, memes on social media and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Very easy to digest. There's no investment required. 
you know. Yeah, it, 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 that's very much true. You know, the yeah. format has adapted. Although, I, I think like I follow a lot of stuff on Instagram, and and we've talked about this. The multi-panel format does work very well on Instagram, whether you arrange four panels oh, yeah. in one post or yeah. you have swiping, which works really nicely for panel cartoons. I lo- um, I, I love Instagram, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's the only social media I use anymore, and I—I uh, uh, I mean, I, my stuff is shared automatically to Twitter, but I don't really format anything for Twitter. And, uh, well, I end up having to reformat, and since I'm not on Procreate yeah. or anything like that, it's always having to pull the file out, you know, yeah. and configure it and stuff. But I enjoy—I personally like how it, uh, Neighbors looks when I put it. It out looks great on Instagram. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I love actually. I prefer it reading. I prefer reading it in that stacked one, you know, two uh, on top of two panels, on Instagram, than than reading it in the horizontal format. Isn't that funny? Well, it's interesting because obviously left to right is kind of how we all yeah you know kind of got into it. But and it's funny. I mean, funny you mention that because I've I've been toying. I get I get people that'll say, you know, my God, when the hell are you going to do a book or whatever? And yeah. I know I'm like really <laughs> late to the game. But I've been I've been hammering around. At one point, I had about a hundred pages ready for like uh-huh. a standard eight by eight paperback, and then I started jonesing to do this sort of the way I do it on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my god, you know, it's all this reformatting. It starts to become a lot of work. The whole reformatting. Well, yeah, and you're a one man operation. I'm taking it. Oh god, yes, it, it, yeah. So, so you do everything. You do the writing, the lettering, the inking. Yeah, and that's you know I I don't I I try hard not to complain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, but, you know it's tough. It's, but it's is uh, for for those who don't know next door neighbors. I read it on uh, have had read it on Go Comics. Now I read it on Instagram mostly. So it's distributed by Universal UClick. Is it distributed to newspapers as well? No, no, I think it's a go comics, I think serves a, at least my gut instinct serves a bit of a different function in that it's somewhat, I think, exploratory for new talent. And that's one interesting thing about the internet and, uh, that they give voice to folks, you know, maybe me or whoever, but they give voice to folks who, you know, because of the attrition and the contraction in newspapers, you know, that wouldn't really otherwise be able to have a strip out there at all. And I, I love the form so much. Oh, me too. And took so many cracks at it over the years. I mean, I, I, oh my God, I think I've, I tried it since the early nineties, about eight times I've pitched properties, Uh huh. even as the field was, you know, contracting. So I think one of the interesting thing is, is if you really want to do a comic strip, and this is, I hate to sound real like preachy here and stuff, but I mean, if you really want to do a comic strip, you, you have to chop wood and carry water if you get my drift. Yeah. You just have to do it. Because yeah. There, there is no, like, you don't, I don't know. I, 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 it's not like you just walk up to a syndicate and they hand you $300,000 and you walk out <laughs> the door. It just doesn't work like that. You have to just do it. And, yeah. and there then becomes sort of the Zen thing that you and I were talking about earlier that, you know, I use the chop wood carry water because the process is intensely gratifying to me. I, I hope I don't sound too like a kid here. But you're, 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 you know, preaching to the choir, man. Oh, well, good. <laughs> because <laughs> it's just, it, it really, when you get a sequence yeah. of strips and I had one, uh, there was one a while back that I did with Norm on this while back where his mom, one of the cats got in the tree and stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is probably like two or three years ago, but it was actually, my mom was sort of like, you know, Vera, no, nothing at 
all like her. Everybody says, is she, you know, is she Vera? But she's not. But she was into cats and stuff. But anyway, I did a sequence where the cat was up a tree and it was directly taken from, you know, my life. So when I got the the sequence done, I thought, man, I, I read the thing and I thought it was funny. Oh, <laughs> and that's when you put your own stuff. But I mean, I thought it was pretty hilarious. Oh man. Well, I see, that's the problem. I, 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 you know, I tend to write stuff and I go, Oh, I think this is funny. And then half the people in the world don't, you know, don't agree. My wife says what my I, quirky I, sense I, of humor is, it doesn't go over. But see, so what I think is funny is not funny to others, but I mean, you know. I can tell, I can tell from your stuff immediately that you love fifties graphics. You love oh. mid century modern. Yes. And you know I mean? absolutely. I and, you love know, that stuff. Oh man, I've been in, and this is a funny thing. Deb, Deb and I were talking about this earlier today, you know, in, in terms of coloring and in terms of uh, what flies on Instagram and what flies on social media and what people, what kind of eye candy people look for, I'm going in the exact opposite direction. You know, people right, want right. a very Disneyfication kind of look, you know, very full and um, faux realistic, not faux realistic, but it's, you know, it's, it's got that um, almost three dimensional kind of quality of illustration people just love. And or the Disney look, you know, which so many of these kids have really got down so well. And your, and I'm going. To, evokes, it evokes Doris Day. It evokes, you know, uh, Roman Holiday and all the, the, the early. I love early 60s. I love Palm Springs, for example. The whole yeah. aesthetic of that era shows up in your stuff. Oh, really thanks, does. man. Because yeah. I've been trying for that, and I, and I wasn't sure it was coming across. You know, hive hairdos and all that. Yeah, yeah. I was totally, yeah. you know, I've been totally <laughs> aiming for that, and uh, and trying to get more and more of it into my style, and and you know, nail it down even more because I really admire. Same thing along with the comic strip. The comic yeah. strip is, is as we're talking about this form. It's this this form in which you have to do a lot of editing, a lot of paring down, and you're you're shaping something that is edited, but when it's done well, it's beautiful it's a thing of beauty you know all of the rough edges are gone and all of the unnecessary elements and and modernist illustration was like that too and and oh, so sure. you know uh well, that's kind of what i've been aiming for but thank you but, oh no oh i love the stuff and i gotta tell you though when it comes to the the strips and stuff you know i think one of the things that that comes out to me and again this is after like you know eight pitches over all these years and stuff yeah I, you start to realize like you were saying a, a bit ago that you know half the people don't get it but if they ha if they're not onto your own private Idaho, so to speak, <laughs> it's kind of their tough luck. I, I I'll be very honest. I mean, I I know Norm is a is a very repellent character. We're not going to see plush dolls of Norm Dewey anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it just is what it is. And, yeah. You know, I my think my thinking, and I try. I remember I did a strip pitch in the in the '90s that actually has to be an embryonic version of Next Door Neighbors, but it was called Homefront. And it was like every every family strip you ever run into, and it was very cute, and it was warm, and you know, warm and fuzzy, refrigerator worthy, and all that. But I, I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, there's just as an example of what floats my boat. There was a TV show in the late '80s, I think, with Dabney Coleman. Oh, I remember that. Oh, he was a prick. Yeah. Character was a prick. It was awesome. I love that stuff. Yeah, yeah, well, it, I remember that. To show. me, I've always been fascinated by repellent characters that have some type of backstory, and that's kind of my sense of humor. Some people hate it. <laughs> that's well, fun, you know. I could see how 
somebody could and and yeah. you know people who want their warm and fuzzy ziggy kind of stuff Ooh. but but for me uh, I, and i you know and i encourage people to look up next door neighbors man and, and you know look up pat yeah. on instagram go uh, to go comics too go, go to go, go comics because that's how you get paid right is through <laughs> yes. Yes. so go to go comics look for next door neighbors because i'm telling you if it, it, this is the funniest strip and oh. what i love about the stuff pat is that is not only it's an easy in in, in a way once you start reading it and it flows it reads as though and i know you work at this it reads as though you just like it flows out of you without any work without any effort none of that comes across what comes across is it's just flowing humor and it's like calisthenics man <laughs> but thank you that's the best that's a wonderful compliment thank you so much because it is i'm being facetious here but it is torturous sometimes right know how that is yeah, and but man, your stuff just reads so you know, naturally. It just flows, and that's part of what I just love about it. Oh, thank you. Well, again, I'll think of the name of your show. I mean, it's Charles Schultz. Yeah, is my idol, and the only one close to him for my purposes is Gary Trudeau, and both uh -huh. of them, probably more than the art ever could have, the the writing resonated, and it's not the only thing that I've ever really been able to glean, I guess. And I'm really trying to weigh my words here because those two are almost mythological to me. They're like Mount yeah. Rushmore. Yeah. But I think their ability with what I call conversational writing yeah. is extraordinary. Certainly yeah. Gary Trudeau. And their ability to let the copy or the words in the strip flow um, effortlessly is something that I will work on till I die. You know what I mean? It's very difficult to do that, but you, ha I'll be sitting there. I mean, I'll be really honest with you. And it sounds very strange, but I mean, I'll be sitting here in my studio and I'll actually, this sounds really goofy, man. I will voice out uh -huh. verbally what I'm writing. Yes. And I, I would try very hard for, con God, this sounds goofy for conversational authenticity. It had to me the the strip, has to sound like people talk. Does that make any sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it has to flow like that. And I'm also really a freak over things like structural problems. You know, like uh, my oh. wife is really good. She's she was she's really good at spotting stuff. And I've got a few uh, friends that'll see stuff. I'll show it to them early, and they'll, you know, sometimes they'll say, "Well, that, you know, look at that. Take a look at that, and then check it out or whatever." And I'll and I'll go back and I'll edit and all that kind of stuff. But it's uh, editing, editing your own writing is extremely difficult to do. It, it is. And oftentimes in this kind of, you know, world where we do get information so quickly, and this is true of newspaper comics going back in the day too. I don't think the reader often, and, and really they're not supposed to, the reader's not aware of what kind of struggle goes on or what kind of writing or that there even is writing per se. Uh, particularly when they love a character, it just seems like the words are coming out of the character's mouth, whether, whether it's, you know, Charlie Brown or Little Abner. Or oh, yeah. Or Fanny. I mean, but I've had but I've had people. Um, God, I remember this a while back when they say well, I did this in a strip and somebody says, well, you can't end a sentence in a preposition like it or whatever, you know. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. Right. And then I, I looked it up and I said, oh, that's true. And then I what I, I guess my point ultimately is when I see some type of blip like that. Uh -huh in the strip, I, I make sure I don't do it again. I try not to. Yeah. yeah. I just learn along the way. And, it, and, you know, when you're trying to, to, uh, balance brevity, humor, writing structure, and grammatical correct and all that <laughs> kind of stuff, it's a little bit of a headache. 
I'll even, some strips I'll like I'll do I'll do like four or five in a row and stuff, and then I'll notice on the fifth one that I used the same type of line that I used in the first one. Well, you know, I don't I don't change stuff like that. It makes me crazy, and I try not to do it again. But you know how that goes. Yeah, you begin to, especially when you're doing strips, you you really do begin to notice your patterns. You know what kind of patterns you fall into, whether in terms of language or, or in terms of setting up a joke or the timing yeah. of joke. You know? Some of them I'll keep. I mean, that's that's that doesn't that's not necessarily a bad thing to have patterns. You know? No, not at all. I don't think so. Right. I think Schultz had patterns. Schultz Schultz did it all the time. I mean, I remember there's one line that, and this is when I was a kid. I I, I just devoured peanuts. I'd lived in lived every day to read it, but, uh, bought all the paperbacks. There. But I remember one line I saw that Snoopy had said, and I, I think he was the only character that would ever say this. And it was usually the fourth panel and Snoopy would say something to the effect of how gauche. Did you ever see that line? <laughs> I think I did. Yeah. Well, I think see, I he used it. Schultz used it surprisingly a lot as a gag. I'm not going to say like hundreds of times, but I mean, dozens of times in the sixties in particular, he used this line where Snoopy would, would kind of smirk at somebody and think how gauche. Uh, so here I am a 10 year old kid and I'm looking up the definition of gauche. <laughs> and I think it means, I think it means tacky or something like that. Yeah, you know? right. But It was awesome. So you all, you also learned as you went. Yeah. Well, yeah. And Schultz, you know, I think Schultz knew that there was humor and repetition. And oh. so, you know, he, he would often, uh, utilize that. So for example, Peppermint Patty would say to Marcy, and this is over and over again, you're weird, Marcy. And I don't know if you remember that one, but he uses that a lot. And it's not even really a punchline. It's not even a a joke. It's It's more observational. It's observational. And, and so he wasn't afraid of, of upending that expectation a little bit. And, and also, you know, at a certain point, counting on his readership to know how he uses the language to know what his humor is and to recognize the catchphrases. Yeah, that's, that's a critical thing. Schultz definitely for sure. I think that, and that's something that I'm always trying to remind myself. Hey, it's never a good time to break into one of these interviews and remind you to check out my work, but I've got to do it anyway. Please check out jeffgrogan.com. That's G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. You can follow my work. You can follow my new comic strip, Spiking the Lens, there. Uh, You can also go to its own website, spikingthelens.com. It's a comic strip about actresses and agents and authors and making movies in Los Angeles. And somehow or another, there's a laundromat mixed into that bunch as well. So check it out. I think you'll find it amusing. Uh, You can also follow myself, my work, everything at uh, Grogan Jeff, G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F on Instagram. That's where I am most of the time. When I'm not mowing the lawn, I'm on Instagram. So uh, check me out there, okay? Uh, And that's it. So let's get back to the interview. Is that if I feel like I'm getting too... Um, I don't know what the word is, obtuse or something, like nobody will get it. I, I'll give you an example. Today's strip, I mm-hmm. referenced Animal House in the punchline. There's um, some, originally the judge was something about double secret probation or whatever, but I, I kind of gilded it a little bit and said double, triple, quadruple secret probation. And yeah. what some people I think might not have gotten that because they're they not aware of the, the movie Animal House or whatever, but it, it's my sense of humor. You know what I mean? Man, so you just gotta got to yourself. Yeah. I mean, you have to, it's sort of a situation. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You have to trust 
oh my God, you got to trust your own instincts that you're following your own thing, whatever it may be, and then just let it ride. And that's, I I see, I see so many times where um, people will get out of the gate with something, say online or whatever for like a week, and then they don't like it and then they'll start over. And and you really don't want to do that. Once you've laid the seeds, it sounds really weird to put it this way, but once you planted the seeds, you got to let it bloom a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You have to, and you have to trust your instincts and and go with it a little bit, you know, and, uh, certainly, you know, uh, it's interesting for all of what we're talking about, how instinctual the work in next door neighbors seems to be, you know, just how organic and natural the characters really seem to be speaking out of themselves rather than being reading scripting scripted dialogue. Yeah. Thank you. That's a, that's a little bit of a chore though. I mean, one thing that I, you know, at one point I've thought about spinning uh, Vera off on her own. Uh-huh. And, like then there's been, and there's been times where I've thought about, you know, rather than doing that, maybe making us doing a Sunday every week. And the, the Sunday would be Vera, you know, featuring Vera or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the characters do there's their their own little worlds and stuff. I feel a little bit bad sometimes because I usually don't use Claire and Jake as often as I'd like to. Mm-hmm. I think the the issue there for me is a Norm is a very strong character. So is his mom. And in a, in a way, Jan is sort of the straight person. But the kids, until I have something specific, and I have a lot that I can do, but until I have something specific, I really truly want to roll out. I don't want to also go over the same stuff all the time. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? So they tend to be a little proppy. Well, you know, uh, here's the thing. I mean, next door neighbors. I don't. I don't know quite how old it is. I think it started on Go Comics in 2016. Yes. So, in terms of comic strip history, maybe not web comics history, but in terms of comic strip history, it's still pretty young in the development. Oh, of the strip. God, yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. It, so you know, it's funny too because it's an iteration. Uh, hmm. Next door neighbors was actually originally pitched to the syndicates in 2001. Oh, really? And, yeah, and the Norm character, they all, there's the same characters, it just, like, I'll give you an example, the Jan character in the original pitch actually looked like Sylvia Ludman with the sort of bouffant hairdo, and uh-huh. Norm always wore a pork pie hat in those days, and I think he had glasses, too, he might have had glasses, but there was, a, there was a Claire, I think the kid's name was Conrad in the original strip or something, but, uh, you know, it was pretty much the same strip, and I even had one, I had a couple of nice responses from the syndicates, uh, but you know, there's so many chairs. There's so yeah. many, there's only so many places. And the syndicates oh. invest a ton of time and money into each strip that they launch. I mean, they that's a tough job there. I'll tell you right now. Yeah, I think it, it must be. And uh, and but at this point, you know, I think they also have to be thinking about. And I don't know any of this really for sure. But alternative outlets, if they're going to continue to do this kind of work, because obviously the newspapers are shrinking. And and as much as I try to, you know, support a local newspaper here and there, you know, I get and even I and I used to do collage work based on the on you know cutting up the New York Times and stuff. I don't I haven't bought the Times in a long time. I just get everything online, and I think that's true of everyone. I. You know what? I'm just as guilty. And I feel I'm be very honest with you. I feel terrible about it because, you know, I'm a child of our contemporary culture, just like everybody else. But, you know, I mean, I was um, I was just at a, a record store the other day. You remember record stores? You know, yeah, <laughs> I'm over yeah, this yeah. and I had some money to burn and I didn't have a lot of time, but I was sniffing around. And uh, it's incredible because I kept thinking, well, I want to buy this CD. 
but yeah. I have Spotify. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you're stuck in this loop. And it's funny because one of my favorite bands, I'm going to buy their CD anyway. It's coming out. I think I was mentioning online recently, Wilco. I just. Uh-huh. Yeah, you did. Yeah. 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 And we were we were just in upstate New York, actually. Uh, oh, wow. Festival. But I mean, I, you know, bands like that I will support. But it's tough because in general, it's really tough because everything is digital. It's easily had. It's very I don't, I truly, as much as I, you know, talk about it, I'm not even sure where I land on it. It's a very weird thing with the internet. Well, you know, um, in terms of the object, yeah. you, know, you know, and music in particular, I really do miss an album. And I know, you know, oh, uh, yeah. vinyl has come back to a certain mm-hmm. extent, not anywhere near what it was, but no. vinyl has, has come back and people are into, to, you know, buying it for the object and, sure. and uh, that experience, because it is a different experience. And the same thing is true of comics. And we were talking about this when we were talking about mad the other day, yeah. uh, that experiencing the, the, your work in print, whether you're a cartoonist experiencing it in print or you're buying a book, you know, and I love books, you know, but at I, the same time, find time to read a book when I'm scrolling all the time is more and more difficult. And, you know, well, I'm going to read today. I'm going to read out of my book. Well, instead I keep, you know, going back to, you know, what is easily available on my iPad. And, right. you know, this is the, the conundrum. It's the addiction. It's whatever it is. And uh, it's the reality. And I think that, you know, it's interesting. It's kind of a hallmark in a way, not only mad closing, uh, but also, um, you know, seeing that King Features the other day put up some posts about launching um, Cuphead animation as an animated animated oh, character. Yeah, Cuphead yeah, video. saw that. And so that's like the first thing that I've seen them get behind that's new in a while, and it's already an existing property, and they're going to do animation. And I guess um, right. the CEO uh, or president of King Features, um, C.J. Kettler, she comes out of animation, and and you know they must be looking for alternatives for their properties now. You know? I, I, th- I think uh, that goes, and that includes books as well. I think anything. This this it's not just syndicates really. I think that certainly the greeting card companies are kind of in this and studios and all this type of business. But the the in God it sounds really wonky, but the ingestion of content is insatiable out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so many places to ingest that content that I think that some of the older school platforms, things like you know syndicates, newspapers, greeting cards, and all that are just really beginning to catch up and realize that the, you just have to create. It's so we, we're in a blizzard of content. It's just you got the content has to find a home, you know, and, and find a home and find yeah. a, a way in which for there to be adequate, you know, uh, livelihoods based around, sure. it, you know, oh, sure, which is, yeah. you know, whether you're a, a young band that's trying to survive, uh, you know, or a musician waiting for royalties, you know, from your latest release or you're a cartoonist trying to sell comics. You know, I think one way or the other, uh, you know, we keep having this discussion, but it's hard, you know, to find a way to do it. And uh, but in terms of what you're saying, yeah, you know, I listen to the Comics Lab podcast with Brad Geiger and Dave Kellett. And those guys are really smart. And and uh, they've been doing this a long time and they know how to do it and they know how to make a living at it. And they've established independence away from all of these larger corporate entities. Right. You know, I've never been able to follow suit. You know, I think I've been posting online since probably when Brad Geiger did, you know, late 90s, early 90s, actually (laughs) mid 90s. And I, I've never gotten anywhere with it. You're either clued into it or you're not. But but what I'm saying is is that they found a way and they keep 
hammering away at the idea that the old models are not really appropriate for the time. And I think so when you have a large corporate entity, you know, like King Features, uh, you know, they if they're not fleet of foot, you know, right away, it's hard to figure out how to move with all of the stuff that's invested in, in past technology and how to move forward into a, a, a sea of content and um, vehicles for distributing that content. Well, there's no question. I, I, that's To me, I think that's at the heart of any creative conundrum in this day and age is it's, it, you know, I mean, you could be a little bit more blunt about it and say, well, you know, how do you monetize your ideas, which is really what it boils down yeah, to. But I think yeah. the most, but they're like with comic stores, what I'm seeing is obviously there's the book thing. So I, you know, I'm the yeah. slow folks, so I'll, I'll eventually get one out, but it's going to have a lot of, uh, copy in it. I, I got a lot of commentary to go into it. And everything, but, uh, <laughs> I really do because there's a lot of stories behind the strips, but you know, the thing is, is that there's also comic book conventions, which in the last 15 years blew up like nuclear, mm-hmm. you know, suddenly that I mean, 30 years ago, if, if I was in the same cocktail party I'm talking about 35 years ago, if I start talking about comics, I'm get, I get crickets. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Now, people stare at you. Yeah. The whole planet is like Gaga over, you know, it's, it doesn't matter what it is, Avengers, Endgame or whatever. And uh, so now one of the outlets, obviously, is this method of outreach where the cartoonists, not necessarily NCS members, uh, but, you know, like dudes that just get a table and they'll put it out there and they'll draw stuff. I'm I'm actually a bit of a I'm a bit of an introvert. It scares the crap out of me to do something like that. I'll be real honest with you. Have you ever done it? No, because I just no. I don't know what I would do or say. I mean, even if I had a stack of books, I mean, I I don't well, know. I've done it. I've done it, I've done it a lot of times. And, yeah. Uh, over the period, I started doing it in the early '90s, and Steve Conley and I were talking about this a while ago. Both of us were at SPX when it first started out, Small Press Expo in Maryland, which is one of the premier places. Oh my God, I went to one of those one time yeah. in San Francisco. Yeah, pretty intense. Yeah, Ape in San Francisco. It's Alternative Press Expo out there, and uh, which is great. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to do. It's also very frustrating because it is if you are trying to monetize and make a living, or you're trying to establish some kind of career there, it can be frustrating in terms of sales it can be hard to sell well i'm even more about like my and again this is sort of like the the nerd woody allen in me but i'm like i i just know i'll show up with all my books and sit in a corner and get crickets i mean i don't know know? i've done that so you understand that yeah i understand and and it is discourage you know it's it's about as discouraging as putting up a post on instagram and and uh getting like four likes and then i try very hard i will be really honest with you the whole currency the whole internet currency of likes and shares i mean i realize with go comics i I get all the metrics and everything but you know if you my my gut and I always have to kind of go back to my gut instincts on stuff like this. If you worry about that stuff, you'll make yourself crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's true. You do. And, it's, it's, and it, it's the same thing. But at, at conventions, there's good points and bad points, obviously. Now, again, listening to Brad Geiger and Dave Kellett, they're sort of swearing off conventions for themselves now that they don't they don't make the money they used to make. And they're not because they can be very expensive. You know, you, overhead for you rent sure. a table or you rent a booth or if you have to travel, yeah. it can be very expensive. And and uh, so it can be it can be difficult if you don't already have a fan base, um, mm-hmm. you know. 
when I, we used to do SPX or something, the guys who I, I was sitting with, uh, we always watched over at the drawn and quarterly table and the fanographics table, and everybody's lined up at those tables oh. buying the latest yeah. books there. And all of their guys, you know, whether it's Jaime Hernandez or Gilbert Hernandez or, or it was Seth or whoever else they're working with has the latest book out, is there at their table signing. And so you're sitting there by yourself. <laughs> chat with the people next to you you know and every now and again somebody comes by and says oh what's this you know and and buy something it can be nice in that regard and that you might meet some nice people i don't you know and some people swear by it but i also feel like for me and you you know and this is the difference too i think for a younger person who who is starting out and and you know maybe they're there with some friends and they've gotten together to rent a table together right. and stuff and I saw a lot of that too. It can be a viable thing and an entryway into things in an exciting oh, no question. Yeah, for me and you, uh, you know, who are at this other end of the spectrum, it right. can be uh, expensive. It can be a backache. It can be a waste of time. We could be doing other things when you know you go there and you meet five people and you sell maybe two books and or you know that's right. Now, see, to me, I would probably I would do a convention without. I mean, I would hope to have some books to sell and everything, but I mean, I would do a convention. Well, more I'm waiting for your book, social. man. I'm I'm, I, I, <laughs> I'm gonna get this thing done by God. But um, I would I would do it more for the social aspect because I'm a comic book nerd anyway, you know. So and I, and I was at San Diego Comic Con a few years ago and was just dumbfounded oh, at that time that the thing had been overtaken by Sony and all this kind of business. So it was yeah. far bigger. You know, my comic conventions of yesteryear were the you know the the guy with the old Sergeant Furies in a box and your yes. oh yes kind of bit. You know, now it's kind of like you know after Big Bang Theory. I mean, my God, it's that is the culture. Yeah, it is. And, and you know what? I used, I'm I'm with you. I love that stuff. I used to my favorite conventions in the city were back in the day when uh, there was no New York Comic Con. Right. It was, there was Big Apple uh, Comic Con, Big Apple. And they, they used to put on these these uh, shows in this church basement in the middle yeah. of Manhattan, on the west side of Manhattan. And it was sweaty. It was dark. You walked into that place and you felt like you were descending into, you know, it some seedy cool. basement someplace. Yeah. You know? And it was great. It was, it was, you walk through and you could, this is where I got most of my books where I collected most of my, yeah. my uh, run of fantastic foreign stuff. It was just, it was great. You could get books for a decent price. You know, there, it was different. It was a, entertainment companies had not taken over. It was not a spectacle. It was something else. Right. And uh, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's now become meta. It really has. In oh, many yeah. ways. And I think that's, you know, going back to like doing shows or having a book or whatever, I think I kind of made peace with once once I got on with Go Comics and all that, I realized I was in a much bigger um, ocean. Yeah. And you just have to build your own little world. And and hopefully and I'm being very, you know, like uh, aspirational here. I mean, hopefully people follow you. And that's a good thing. I think in this day and age, the rest of it, the monetization and the, the books and the meeting people and all that does obviously rest on the creator. And yeah. you, you kind of do the best you can. It's still. Yeah. I still will go back to the fact that I, I every time I get a strip done or a sequence or there's some storyline that's really kind of rocking it, I just I look at it and I go, yeah, 
<laughs> I know there's a great yeah, sense of satisfaction. Maybe not everybody gets to do it, but I look at it and I think, you know, I'd read that strip. So, well, and uh, you know, ultimately, I guess that's what it comes down to is, uh, you know, and it's not so different from back in the day in a way, uh, where you know Charles Schultz would write a strip and then and then he'd send it off to the syndicate, and he, that's the last he heard about it. You know, oh, yeah. you know, and, and in a way, what that kind of isolation is is both good and bad. You know, you're you don't know anything until the syndicate comes to you and says, well, you know, Charles, we've we've gone from, you know, seven papers to 300. And And wow. But that's pretty exciting. And money starts rolling in. But, you know, when we do it and and I had this feeling the other day, I put up a post that just didn't do anything, but I felt really good about the work. And, yeah. and I felt like I did that for me and, and I feel good about it. And I think ultimately, you know, you do have to do it for yourself. You, you do have, have to, you have no choice. You have to follow your, whatever your music, yeah. it's no, um, Oh, you know, maybe I, I know I'm preaching the choir here, but I mean, there is no, I don't know how to put this. You, you can't contrive success you have to do this sounds so like touchy-feely and it's not meant to be but you have to do whatever is floating around in your brain and your heart and let it out and then if somebody digs it they will sense that authenticity yeah there's no magic like there's no magic bag of beans and stuff that the syndicates have that they can tell you what'll work they don't know any more than anybody else does yeah you know they know there's some demarcation points like you know maybe it's about kids or family or whatever it might be or a cute little dog or something but that's about all they know. And yeah. that's all we know, you know, so you just do what comes from your heart and you figure it out from there. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about Schultz, but I have to tell you that the other, the other hero of mine is Gary Trudeau. Right. Yeah. And Trudeau is in a way, the antithesis of Schultz in a oh, way. Man. Yeah. You I know? don't, it, interesting that you say that. I don't think they actually got along very well either. No, he didn't. Sure. I think Trudeau really didn't care for the the licensing thing or whatever and how, how it blew up. He was not a that type. But I think that Schultz was old guard too, you know. Well, you know, it's interesting because there's a, a kind of a difference in, in generations and oh, difference yeah. in, in and a very clear demarcation between, you know, the World War II generation, right, which was yeah. Charles Schultz and a certain attitude about work and a certain attitude about what's proper and what's not proper. And then you have Gary Trudeau who comes out of <clears> – <throat> You know, uh, you know, the late 60s, uh, uh, the counterculture and his strip was suffused with that and with liberal politics and all of that. And so you can see that the two of them, you know, might be oil and water. Yeah. Politically, I think they were vastly different. They certainly respect each other tremendously. But I mean, there was a definitely a gulf there. But I think with Trudeau, one of the interesting things uh, is how I got into Trudeau was that my mom was a William Buckley conservative. (laughs) <laughs> okay. I mean, she really was brilliant woman. She just that was her guy was William Buckley. Buckley, for, for while I may disagree with his politics, completely, right? Same. I I think the guy was very 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 different conservative in a lot of ways. Like, very like smart Tays. guy. Not yeah, like yeah. not like Rush Limbaugh. Not like those guys. No, no, no. This was and, a really uh, smart and and gentlemanly guy. You could have an argument oh, with yeah. him. Gore Van Allen and him got into some tussles. He, she she was a National Review, you know, that's her, her magazine. That his he was the publisher of that. But anyway, she comes up to me. I was probably in about eighth grade, and she says, you know, you should read this comic strip I've been reading. My mom, a conservative, was reading Doonesbury. Fascinating. And so you know, this is 1972 or whatever, and it it just started to show up in our paper, the paper I grew up with, the Akron Beacon Journal, and I started reading Doonesbury, and I fell in love with it. 
Me too. I really did. And then at the same time, by the time I got into eighth grade, we had a we had a very liberal social studies teacher who brought the TV in every morning so that we watched the Watergate hearings. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, had Doonesbury and stuff. So I got to read in the early goings, you know, Mike and Zonker and the motorcycle rides and yep. going, you know, on the road and all this. And again, what I thought was so amazing about Doonesbury is how, in some ways, how similar in heart that it was to, to Peanuts. Uh-huh. These characters were real. They were real and they reacted very, very authentically to each other, which is something that I had only seen really in Peanuts in a way, but I mean, it was definitely drilled home in Doonesbury. Oh, man. You and know, his, his grasp of conversation was astounding to me, even at that age. I agree. Work, yeah. I mean, it makes sense that he would go on to, you know, write comedy and, and you know, sitcom comedy is, I guess he's done. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, I agree. And uh, okay, Pat, I have to ask you, and maybe I'll cut this out, you know, because we don't want to reveal it exactly. What year were you born? Oh, 59. 59. Okay, man. I was born. Oh, so you're still able to edit. Good. Cause yeah, I, got I can edit, right? Yeah, no, no. I was born in 60. I was born in 60 there. Okay, so, we're the same age, man. Yeah. We are the same age. We we go through the same thing. So the, all of this is embedded in our psyche. I got to tell you, man, uh, the, the, it felt like a natural, um, you know, transition from Peanuts when I was a kid to, uh, and, and all of those things into Doonesbury when we were 13 and 14, 12, yep. 13. 14 um Doonesbury just felt like that step into you know while the characters were no longer kids they were young adults and you know college students and and so there was it, it almost seemed like a natural transition you know from the one to the next and the thing that they both shared which you talked about earlier and I wanted to come back to too it was this love of character comedy you know the dialogue the way things are said the phrases that are utilized the the comedy itself comes out of the reactions and the responses of characters to one another yes. with the situations and and that's what they share you know well Doonesbury got involved in issues of the day and i loved that in particular as i was becoming kind of as we all were both of us were becoming aware politically maybe in, yeah. the, in the early 70s uh you know i loved all of that but but what Peanuts and, and Doonesbury really shared was this idea that the humor comes out of characters that you really get to know as people and care about as people. Right. And I, I would say, and again, in both instances, while Peanuts might be a little more obviously simplistic in its structure than Doonesbury, the heart and the pain comes through loud and clear. I mean, you look at something like Peanuts and there's some very sad, I mean, you're, while you're busy laughing, there's some very sad things that go on in that strip. Conversely, the same thing over in Doonesbury where, you know, I mean, uh, the Joni Caucus story and Mike, and then they get busted for a marijuana seed and all these type of stories that go on. Uh, you know, uh, the, the one kind of forget his kid's name, he, he spoke to Congress. They had all these hearings. I mean, Doonesbury would go off on tangents that would last months. Yeah. And Amazing. then go back. I mean, I, I used to love that. I really did. I did too. And I yeah. loved it. Uh, did, did you love it in the newspapers or did you love it in the collections? Uh, well, both. And probably the collections, it's easier to digest because, yeah. you know, I, I sense in people even today with next door neighbors, I mean, they'll, there's sort of an impatience. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, you know, well, he should be doing this and why, why won't he do that or whatever. And I'm, it's like, I go back to this thing. You're trying to write a novel and you can only spit out 
you know, one, one sentence a day or something like that. You know, I had a conversation yeah. with Ray Billingsley the other day, uh, of Curtis and yeah. Ray, Ray, uh, has been around long enough to see a lot of changes in, in the syndication world and in comics and in the readership. And one of the things he was saying was, you know, he used to do these Kwanzaa strips, um, that would last. The stories were beautiful strips and they, and they were, uh, you know, folk tales that would take a couple of weeks, uh, around right. the period of the new year and Christmas. And right. Right. Yeah. And the beautiful stuff. And he said that he stopped doing those in the last couple of years because the readership had changed. And what he what he he went on to elaborate about that, you know, the, there was an impatience in the audience uh, for a two week story that uh-huh. they they really, you know, didn't have the patience for two weeks anymore, that that a week long story was about all he could do. And, and, and before he started to lose the attention of his readers. And, and that is kind of the thing where I wonder, like those strips in Doonesbury that we're talking about, even Schultz, Schultz might do a two week strip. Oh, Schultz, I think got up to a month at one point. In the yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Baseball or, or, you know, that well, people were shocked back in the day when, what was it? 55 that uh, Charlie Brown uh, was, his kite got caught in the tree and he was just going to stand there by the tree for the rest of his life, you know, oh, and it went yeah. on for eight days. I mean, but, Schultz, he definitely would drag the stories out, but Trudeau would, was yeah. the king at it. And yeah, yeah. He just, well, oh my God, yeah. Well, Little Abner, too. I mean, well, uh, there's another one, yeah. Another one, or Dick Tracy, or any of those strips would go on with a, a, a storyline that might go on. But you're right. Doonesbury would have these strips that veered away from the central cla- cast or whoever we assumed was initially, and then go on for months at a time. You but know, this, but, the, what was so amazing about Doonesbury, now this is in contrast to things like uh, Little Abner, per, well, Little Abner maybe is not a good example, but things like Dick Tracy. Mm-hmm. He he would do these long six eight month story arcs, and every day they were funny. Yeah, every I know. Day would wind up with some level of conversational punchline. I thought, my God, how does this guy do it? You know. Yeah, and and I, and he was hilarious. Oh, and I I have to go back and and read because I what what I base most of my experience on is is reading the collections back when I was sixteen oh, and seventeen. Sure. You know, in the seventies, and and I laughed my my you know backside off. Sure. Uh, reading that stuff and um same is true of course of peanuts and i still laugh you know peanuts but i have to go back and read those i have the collections on my shelf and i i should go back and read them the first couple of them because i want to see what the the question i have is really you know when a strip is that topical does the does the humor translate you know 50 years later because doonesbury is 50 years old now yeah some of the doonesbury stuff i think maybe subject matter wise I don't even want to use the term dated. It's just that it, it, in many ways, and I think Trudeau at one point, and I, I'm assuming here, but I believe he was working at best a week to two weeks ahead at best. Oh, wow, man. Yeah, so, I guess you would have to. It was right on top of things. And I think that was usually, you know, to the strip's credit and stuff. But he never, ever lost the humanity of those characters. And I love the guy for it. I really yeah. do. I, I think th- those characters resonated with me here we are, you know, 45 years later or whatever. I'm still yeah. in love with it. You know, yeah. are you, are you keeping up with it? You still read it every, every, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's tough because, uh, I, I forget there was a story. Somebody was talking about this recently in light of the mad story that satire is, is dying because everything is satire now and every, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't want to get political or anything, but I know that, that Trudeau, I believe he's only on Sundays now. Is that what it is? Yeah, that's that, right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, in yeah, the strip is still pretty, you know, it, 
pulls its sword out and really lacerates when it needs to. But there's really only one buffoon that he goes after. Yeah. For the most part. And I don't blame him. You know, and yeah. it's just oh, yeah, it's too good a story. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. But I think that's what's sad about the mad thing, because mad back in the day yeah. was the equivalent of memes. You know, yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, and that's really. that's where you got your funny at. And I think maybe it just it, it's the tough thing for Matt in this day and age is that everybody is out there being mad, meaning well, humor and all that type of stuff, you know. Yeah. In a, in a way, you know, I mean, hoisted by your own petard or whatever. Petard, yeah, I had somebody, you know, I've rolled out Trump. I don't mean to get into Trump right now, but I'm just saying I've rolled him out in the strip a few times. I, I and, saw that. Yeah. And, you know, I did it. The first time I did it was back in 16 during the election. And it's funny because, you know, I was talking about commentary for whatever book I will be doing, I promise you. But mm -hmm. uh, the um, the strip of I believe it's November 9th of 2016. Um, Norm up until that point was running for city council in the strip. And I was, I was simply trying to parallel the, you know, the current election and stuff. Uh -huh. So the, um, the, he, he loses obviously, but I mean the strip the next day after he loses, Jan says something to him. It was, it was going to run on that Wednesday. And she says something to the effect of, you know, well, I guess things are going to, or Norm says, I think, I guess things will return to normal now. You know, Jan looks at him and then she says, such as it is. It's kind of a deadpan type of gag. I love that. And, well, it was going to go out and it was the night of the election. Yeah. And I'm going to address this in the book because I, for one, was very, very convinced, uh, liberal snowflake that I am, that the man was not going to win. Me too. And by 2 a.m. in the morning, after I put my jaw back in my head and I'm looking at the strip that was going to run the next day and it suddenly became very prophetic. Yeah. Saying, I mean, it suddenly, you know, things back to so normal. Just, yeah. yeah, and some the dial in this country had turned about a micro inch, and I thought, holy crap! So I thought, you know, I was going to rewrite it that night. I was just going to mm -hmm. rewrite the strip, and the gag I had was Jan. It was going to be three panels of nothing, and she walks up to him and then screams at him and says, "I hope you're happy," you know, and then she walks, away. you know, all real big letters and everything. And I just didn't have the whatever in me to just redraw that I just let it go out as is. But that strip, every time I see it, you know, it reminds me of uh, Trump. Yeah. And, sure. and I, it just followed a sequence where I had Trump surreptitiously show up at a Halloween party. It was a little bit surreal. But later on, even the inauguration, I think I had a sequence with Claire with her little rock band where they tried to get in at the inauguration to play for the inauguration. Because if you'll recall, nobody wanted to play for it. Yes, I do. Yeah, so, it was it, so at the I biggest think. at the biggest inauguration in history, right. and, and ever really, you know. But the thing is, is <laughs> I've had when I've when I've addressed Trump on the strip, and like I did recently, man, people get really pissed. And yeah. I'm sorry, but that's what I'm going to do it again. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's yeah, just, it is. Yeah, I got to do it. Yeah, you know, uh, it, I I mean, there is this volatility out there, and even bringing it up is is. Sure an issue and and difficult and and you know it's amazing how the rhetoric has changed you know oh yeah without getting too far into it i i think in recent days we've seen some dialogue that you know is overtly you know racist and, and you know and it, it's it is you know you would never would have heard that overtly spoken now people spoke like that behind closed doors you know i mean you look at nixon nixon was quite the the racist and and spoke behind closed doors but you know nixon knew and had enough respect for the office you know that when he came out to speak at least at least he pretended you know and maybe uh, you know there 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 is some 
idea that, okay, when it's overt, it's something that it's, we can understand and, and we know where it's coming from and it's better to know. Okay. I can understand that. But at the same time, there's just, we've turned a corner, you know, and when we, we've turned a corner like that, it's, it's really, it's a shocking moment. It's just, well, sh- I, w- I will tell you, and I, and I won't belabor it cause I, you know, I know yeah. it's, um, but I will tell you that I, I would have had no problem. I would have held my nose, but I would have had no problem saying President Rubio, President Kasich, whoever it might be. And I have to say that every president that I grew up in my life, I'm going to get crucified for saying this, but just about every president that I've ever known in my life, there was probably at the beginning of their career some civic aspiration for wanting to go into public office, right? Yeah. And even Nixon. Nixon, sure, bad news. He was vile. But as a young man, he wanted to do that. I'm, I'm weighing my words here very heavily. What happened in 2016 is the first time some somebody just walked in to make some money. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, Let's build the brand. This yeah, is a great way brand. to build free advertising. As we speak. Yeah. yeah. Continuing <laughs> so, to build the brand. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's, it, we are in weird, weird, weird times. And, oh, indeed. Uh, yeah. You know, and I hope we, I hope we come out the other side. I really do. Hey, if you want to help this podcast, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. It does a lot to draw new listeners into the program and helps me sustain this. So that would be great. I'd really appreciate it if you could do that for me. You could also help me by heading over to jeffgrogan.com. That's G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. Checking out my work. Uh, I've got a whole pile of stuff there to see, not only in terms of comics, but also in terms of collages and other artifacts uh, from my life in the arts. And uh, you might find it amusing and enjoyable as well, and I hope you do. Uh, Follow me on Instagram at Grogan Jeff, G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. You can follow my comic strip, Spiking the Lens, there three times a week. Uh, Follow it also on its own website at spikingthelens.com. There's lots on Instagram. I try to keep up with it pretty much every day and put up some new stuff that'll be of interest. So head on over there. I really appreciate it. Hope to hear from you one way or the other. And thanks a lot. So there you have it. That's part one of my discussion with Pat Sandy about all things comics, comic strips, next door neighbors, uh, Donald Trump, uh, Gary Trudeau, you name it. We've, we're talking about it one way or the other. If it has to do with comics, comic strips, and, and anything pertinent to uh, Pat's strip, next door neighbors. I really do hope you will follow it on gocomics.com. If you're not going to follow it there, you can always follow it on Instagram. Uh, it shows up there every day too, and that you can find Pat at JP Sandy uh, at on Instagram. JP Sandy, okay. So look for his work, okay. I don't want to let the moment slip by without remarking on the passing of the great animator Richard Williams, one of my heroes, who was the, of course, he's well known for animating uh, Roger Rabbit, uh, Jessica Rabbit, and all those from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but he did much, much more than that, uh, including The Thief and the Cobbler, his magnum opus, uh, he also did uh, numerous uh, commercials, uh, throughout his career, he did uh, independent films. Uh, he did a wonderful Academy Award-winning adaptation of A Christmas Carol, which happens to be one of the most profoundly affecting versions of A Christmas Carol I've ever seen, if if not the most affecting uh, version that I know of that was uh, produced by Chuck Jones, by the way, and uh, involved some of Chuck Jones's crew 
working on it as well with Richard uh, Williams on it. So great, great animator. Uh, one of his last works was a piece, short piece called Prologue, which is just amazing and just shows what hand-drawn animation can do. And there, if you've never seen anything by Richard Williams, you should really look up on YouTube. Just, just look up A Christmas Carol and watch the opening segment which is one of the most extraordinary things you'll, you'll ever see in animation. This extraordinary view of London, uh, 19th century Dickens-era London, and uh, an aerial view that spins and spins and then brings you into Scrooge's, uh, Scrooge and Marley's workhouse. And uh, it, it is an extraordinary feat of movement, of camera movement, of ingenuity and imagination, and it all through that film and so many more by Richard Williams really show what animation can do and what hand-drawn animation can do. And, and uh, I'm really sad to see that, that his life has passed, but his drawings are filled with life and will live on uh, forever, as far as I'm concerned. So a nod to the great Richard Williams. Next time, we've got Pat Sandy Part 2. Conversation continues much in the same vein as this one. I'm just going to try to get that out as soon as possible. I, I don't know it won't, if it'll be this week. It might be this week before uh, the end of the week. We'll see. It just depends on how the cards fall in the next few days. And then after that, uh, I've got a couple of interesting people lined up. I've got Robert Pope, whose name you may not know, but who has been a cartoonist who's worked on many different properties. Among the properties he's worked on over the years is Peanuts and he's currently doing a series of graphic novels for Boom Studios, adaptations of Peanuts movies. Last year, they published Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown, and uh, he's currently working on a brand new one. So we're going to have Robert Pope on in a couple weeks to talk to us about his work on the Peanuts franchise, on Peanuts characters and what that's like, and and then his really fascinating and long-lasting career in animation and in uh, comics in general. And so, because he's worked for a lot of big guns. So, this is going to be a really interesting discussion. So, tune in for that one. Look for it in a couple of weeks. Robert Pope. Okay. That'll do it for me for now. And I will see you next time. Once again, as always, uh, try to stay cool uh, during these really, really backbreaking hot days of summer. Don't work out in the sun too long. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.